0: Welcome to a new series on the book of Romans. When Paul writes his letter to the Christians in Rome, he was writing to address a situation to help resolve a problem. What was that problem? As we ponder the type of folks that made up the church in Rome, we realize the type of problem Paul wrote about still exists in the church today. In today's talk, we see Paul begin to explain his solution. We all belong here by God's grace. Let's join today's service.
1: Welcome here, guys. Today, we are gonna begin a series on the Book of Romans. If you wanna turn to it. I have a little Roman debris field set up behind me to inspire us through this series. Yeah, little Roman debris field. Give you some images to remember as as we go through this. So, the book of Romans was written by Paul, and it was written to Christians in the city of Rome. And if you know anything about Paul's life, he did four missionary journeys. And this book was written after his third, before he set out to his fourth. He's planning to go to Spain. Um, he's in, I think, either Corinth or Ephesians, or Ephesus, and Rome is about halfway. So, he intends to go there, stop, do some ministry, and then carry on to Spain. Rome is the center of the Gentile world, and Paul has been commissioned. To reach the Gentiles. But also, Paul's been ministering for about 25 years now in in his life, traveling from location to location, not only helping people discover Jesus, but helping people in the church grow up and helping churches to get along. When you write a letter, you write a letter for a purpose. So after 25 years of ministry, what does Paul want to talk about? And he's going to talk about two things getting along with others in the church, and being engaged in ministry. And uh, I am in year 25 of doing this job, and uh, I would have to agree that those are two topics that churches struggle with all the time, getting along with other folks in the church, and being engaged in ministry. So uh, over the next 16 weeks, we're going to hit a whole bunch of topics. Let me just offer a prayer as we tackle this. Father, uh, Father, thanks for this morning. Thanks for Christine's leadership and the way she has already brought us into, not just into your presence, but made us very aware that you are with us always, guiding us through our life. Father, as we look at your word, would you please speak through your word and talk to us, draw us to see what is in this scripture that you want us to know and help it, please work in us that it would change us. And I would pray this that you would be glorified, and that we would understand more of who Jesus is. Amen. So let's start by getting a sense of Rome, and that's going to be the bulk of what we talk about today. Uh, in a, some combination of myth and history, the start of Rome begins with. Anybody know what? What does Rome begin with? The start was that an R, an R, yeah. <laughs> starts with the story of Remus and Romulus, not the Vulcans. Um, so whether it's myth or history or some combination thereof, Remus and Romulus are two twin brothers. Jess, you want to bring up the slide? They are perhaps the descendant of the god Mars, if this is myth, and a human mother. Their, new, their mother's brother is king over the land at the time, and he he feels threatened that his power is going to be taken away by the birth of these two boys. So he has them taken and abandoned in the forest by a river, and they're left to die. However, they are rescued and fed by a wolf. That is where this whole story begins. And so this statue is a very famous Roman statue. It's, It's part of their foundation of how they understand who they are. Remus and Romulus being fed by a she-wolf. As the twins live, they um, eventually grow up, they uh, gain some military force, and they don't get along, and um, they cannot decide on what hill to build their city, which will be called Rome. And their arguments get heated, because one wants to build here, and one wants to build there, and eventually Romulus kills Remus. And so Romulus is the guy who's going to build a city and he picks the hill to to live on. His following consists of a bunch of men, bandits and criminals and fighters. What do a bunch of rough and tumble men need if they're going to build a city? Women. So there are no women who are following them. So they decide to have a festival, uh, perhaps uh, a competition of games, and they invite the neighboring Sabine nation and the men and women come over, all these lovely, beautiful women. And at a certain signal uh, Rom- that Romulus gives, all the Roman men grab the women and kill the men. And they now have their wives. And I don't know how much of this is true and how much of it is fiction. And depending which scholar you listen to, you get kind of a different version. But the story of Remus and Romulus is the foundation to the Roman identity. Like myth or fiction, this is where they understand they came from. They fight. They're they're soldiers. Rome existed for centuries before it became the Roman Empire that we know about. They were initially the Roman Republic. So when you think of Rome, what do you think about? Well, perhaps uh, you think of Roman soldiers. So we have a Roman helmet behind us. You perhaps think of gladiators in the arena. You think perhaps of sculpture and and a painted vase as an artwork, which we have behind us. Um, You know, wrestlers uh, in the arena. You might think of the Roman roads, that everything goes to Rome. You might think of inscriptions in stone that um, record famous Roman uh, leaders and generals and their, their conquests. Rome was known for its army. Spreading into neighboring nations over hundreds of years, conquering, taking, and assimilating folks into the Roman culture. And assimilation was part of who they were. They were the Borg of 2,000 years ago, for those of us who are (laughs) Star Trekian. Did you get the tricorder reference to me? Um, When they would conquer a land, they would invite the people that they had conquered into citizenship, but actually, Partial citizenship, which gave people this promise that if you become part of Rome, you will have a good life as long as your men serve in our army. And so the men, under this promise of a good life, would go and serve in the army. I was listening to an episode of Great Courses on Roman History, and the lecturer was uh, Gregory S. Aldred, uh, who is the professor of history and humanities at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay, and he said, it's more nuanced than that. This, the men would go out as soldiers on this promise to you know, come back victorious. But there was this unhappiness and this resentment that was all throughout Rome because the fruits of that conquest, the fruits of those conquests were not evenly distributed. Some people got much more than others. And these men would come home, uh, they would come home impoverished, beaten, wounded, They'd come home and find that the Romans had sold their farms from underneath them. Their wives and children were gone. And so these great soldiers were homeless and unemployed and damaged. They lost while serving the agenda of the empire. So this is a a victorious Rome, and this is a resentful, bitter Rome. We're all a little bit like Rome. We're not in our heritage like Rome at all. But that tendency to battle, to wrestle, to fight with others, that's, that's pretty human. Um, and also that feeling of being betrayed and resentful towards the system of life that we expected, that's pretty normal. And that sense of the ease of battling with people and that sense of resentment spills over into church life quite easily. We all have a base framework for how life should work and how life does work, what we think about ourselves in relation to other people. We find it very easy to wrestle with others now and then, to get mad at someone or to compare yourself with someone else and feel less than, even to target somebody and say, "Ugh, church would be better if that person would leave. That's really common and really natural. And Paul is going to teach us that there is a different way. Jesus gives us a different way. So the church in Rome was likely started by Jews who were at Jerusalem, in Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. They heard Peter preach. They became disciples, and they went back to Rome and brought Christianity with them. There were a lot of Jewish synagogues. There were a lot of Jewish folks in Rome. And when the church first started, it would have been primarily Jewish Christians, and then Gentiles, Romans, were added to it. So it would have had a very Jewish synagogue kind of flavor. Jews we were focused on the law and the law of God, the Ten Commandments, uh, the Old Testament, honoring God by obeying the law as a way to worship God. And those first Christians still had that mindset of we have to obey the Ten Commandments, we have to honor the Levitical laws. They were also the chosen people. They had been God's people throughout their history. They were God's holy people set apart from the rest of humanity to bring salvation to the world a group in the church today that might feel kind of similar to the Jewish mindset or to the Jewish community would be those who grew up in the church people who have a strong Christian heritage who when they were when they were raised they learned the Old Testament they learned the laws they learned the scriptures they learned about how to live a life that honors God by law um that being Christian is just kind of how they understand themselves, even though they still have to make their own decision to follow Jesus. So you've got these two sides. One is a conquering warfare yet resentful side, and another side that believes it's God's chosen people, even though they actually would be quite impoverished and, and kind of secondary citizens. Add to this, in 49 AD... Emperor Claudius orders all the Jews to leave Rome. There had been constant uprisings and squabbles around some guy named Christus, which is possibly, I would say quite likely, a conflict between, about Jesus between the Jewish community, the Gentile community, Christians who were Roman, Christians who were Jews. Anyway, this Christus fellow was causing enough conflict that Emperor Claudius was sick of it and just said all the Jews have to get out which left behind Gentile Christians to run the churches. And these Gentiles would be the ones now who host the, ch- host the church, because they would meet in homes. They'd be developing a way of meeting that fit kind of how they worked as a culture. They'd be sharing their wealth and their food with each other. They'd be working out their theology and their understanding of God from a very Roman perspective. Around 54 A.D., Claudius, Emperor Claudius dies, and the Jews are allowed to return. And it gives rise to this question, who's in control here and who belongs here the most? Can you imagine folks coming back, expecting the church to work the way it did when they left, but they come back it doesn't work that way anymore, um, and this Gentile group that has been running it for five years doesn't seem interested at all, at all in going back to the old ways. And so there's this, wait, who's actually in charge here? Who gets to make the decision? And that who gets to make the decision is really who belongs here. Like, who, is, who owns this thing? And the answer that Scripture's going to tell us is that we all belong here by God's grace. We don't belong here by our heritage. We don't belong here because of our story. We belong here because of God's grace. In the church today, I see this difference still showing up, this question of who belongs here, who controls this. Um, And I think part of how it can show up is the tension between people who were raised in a Christian environment compared to people who were not and then become Christians. And even though you, know, you appreciate each other, you love each other, these weird tensions can show up um, on, the, on the funniest of things. Things like, how do you view resting on Sunday? Because if you were raised in a church environment and perhaps in a more Puritan side, you do nothing on Sunday. You don't go to a restaurant. You dress up. You take a nap in the afternoon. Mom does not cook. Well, you know, people who were not raised that way show up and like, well, it's Sunday, let's go fishing, let's go play, let's, let's go to a restaurant. Like, very different views that can cause this subtle little grading against each other in a group. Same thing about language. What are appropriate words to say? Because uh, some Christians grew up where there are some words we do not say. And then people who didn't grow up in that environment use those words all the time. Different views on drinking. Different views on sexual behavior. Different views on what does it mean to participate in the life of a church. Some of us who grew up in a church environment know that you're expected to participate several times a week, maybe. Where other people would be like, what? I've got to come here several times a week. And it just causes this weird little tension between the group. It can show up in how does a church look. Should, well, i've been part of conversations about how a pulpit should look because some people want a big sturdy wooden pulpit that's large to communicate the authority of the word of god and other people would say why is there a pulpit at all and and it's just this question who wins the argument kind of you know who matters most here who belongs here the most you can see how it all kind of mingles together So in the book of Romans, we're going to talk about grace. And in that grace, we're going to see ourselves differently, and we're going to see other people differently. So Paul writes his letter. And again, he's on his way, hoping to stop in Rome and um, bless them. And he also, as a pastor, wants to deal with these tensions that 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 he knows are there. You with me? Make sense? All right, let's read. I'm going to read the first 17 verses. Jess, you're doing such a great job. Romans chapter 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I had planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated, both to Greeks and non-Greeks, to the wise and to the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome." For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So that's the introduction to this book. We'll stop there. So he mentions that he intends to visit them, he wants to bless them. And I want to draw our attention to two ideas that you may have sort of leaned into but not sure if you should ask about. And it has to do with how he describes Jesus and then this word obligated. So if we ponder verse 2 to 4, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, which really honors the Jewish story, regarding his son, who as to his earthly nature... Or as to his human nature, was a descendant of David, and who through the Spirit of Holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. So when I first read it, I I had a question that came to my mind and then sort of skipped over it. Turns out when you read scripture and a question comes to your mind, that's a thing to lean into. It sounds like he's comparing the nature of Jesus as a human with his nature as God. So it sounds like, you know, he has this earthly nature and then he has this divine nature. But it says that he was appointed the Son of God. That doesn't make sense because he was always the Son of God. So the comparison doesn't work. Now, some translate it as declare, and that's not the best translation, but they're trying to fiddle with this word. And again, declaring him the Son of God, he was always the Son of God. So what is going on here? And the key is going to be, what does the word power refer to? And why is power, power is tied to resurrection? So rather than comparing two natures of Jesus... He's instead comparing two phases in Jesus' life. And that matters because we have two phases in our life. The first phase in Jesus' life is as a human on earth who was part of the nation of Israel. He was a descendant of King David. That was his first phase. At the resurrection, he has a new phase in his life. And in that new phase... He has a new power. He is now the son of God with a new power. He's changed. That power is to forgive sins. He has a new power to forgive that he didn't have before. He has, disp- he has deposed the reign of Satan from the earth. He's established himself as king. He has a new power in his, as king and He now can forgive sins, forgive sins and still be just. Still the son of God, but a new status, a new qualification, a new identity. We too have two phases. We had our old phase, what we were born into, our natural way of life, the way we see our world, the heritage we have, but also In our human nature, we were trapped in our sin, trapped in guilt and shame, trapped in being broken. Now that we are forgiven and restored to life, we have a new phase that is in God's grace. So who belongs most to the church? Well, we are all in this new phase equally together. So, we all belong. So, we have a new identity. We are forgiven. We are included in God's kingdom. There is a base way of seeing ourselves that needs to shift. So, there are subtle clues throughout this passage that indicate this is what's going on. So, for example, right at the beginning, Paul refers to himself as a servant or a slave to Christ, set apart for the gospel. The word set apart is the same idea as holy. It's the same, that's what holy means. When he was a Pharisee, his life before Jesus, he was set apart to the law. He was set apart to the righteousness that came by obeying the law. But now he is set apart with this new definition. He's set apart for Jesus. And if you were not an Old Testament Jew, you would never see that little phrase. But to say he is set apart for the gospel, be like, wait, no, you're set apart for Israel. You're set apart for the law. It's this subtle shift that he sees himself with this new identity. So think about yourself. How do you think of your base identity? So I am Canadian. My dad's side, my, on my dad's side, he was Dutch. On my mom's side, she was Scottish and English. And I could think of myself as my heritage. And there would be some conflict there. But I don't. I think of myself just as Canadian. Some people think of themselves primarily as I work in the trades. Like I work with my hands. I build things. And there's honor in that. And some people, in contrast, say, well, I work in an office. I have soft hands. Some people define themselves as I'm a parent. I am primarily a parent and primarily a grandparent. Or, I am primarily about my mind and my thinking ability. I'm smart. Or, I am primarily a victim, and I've been a victim to things all my life. Or, I am primarily a former addict. Or, I am primarily defined by the crimes that I have done. All of those categories, for good or for bad, work to separate us from other people. Oh, I am Canadian. You're not. Oh, I have a Dutch heritage. Oh, you, you don't. Oh. I'm, uh, you know, I, I've got, I have some education. So I have some education. Oh, you don't. Oh, you're, you are, uh, you're in the trades. You work with your hands. You're stronger than me. You know, we use all those old, those uh, ways of identifying ourselves to separate ourselves from others. But now in this new identity, saved by God's grace, we are all equal. So I am part of the church saved by God's grace, and so are you. I am forgiven because of God's grace, and so are you. I have been given eternal life by God's grace, and so have you. I belong here, and so do you. In God's grace, in the new identity, we all have the equal story. And so there's this shift in thinking that everybody that Jesus brings into his family Everybody he saves belongs here. No matter whether you find them easy to get along with or not, whether they have problems you understand or problems you don't understand, whether you agree with their perspective or don't agree with their perspective, we're all here because of the same foundational identity piece. We are saved by God's grace. We are all equal. So verse 7, to. All in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. That holy people is a term for Old Testament Israel. That's their term. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called all who are called by the term that is supposed to be just for Israel. All who are called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Pretty cool. So there's a second piece that is tied to this identity. And it dances around the word obligated. Verse 14, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Why is he obligated? Like, is it some internal conviction that he just has to do it? No. That's not the, what this word is about. It also could be translated, I am indebted, like I owe a debt. So let's say there are two of you who are going somewhere uh, and you're gonna take a car or whatever, you're gonna take a train and you don't have the money to get there. So I give you the money purely because I want to so that you can get to your destination. That's grace, right? You know, I don't owe it to you. I want you to be able to get there. Here's the money you need. So you can go. That's grace. But let's say the two of you are going to go somewhere. You need, to, you need the money. Um, and I intend to give you the money. But I won't be able to see you before you need to get going. Like whatever's going on, I can't get to see you to give you the money. So I give the money to somebody else. And they are going to bring it to you. That person is obligated to you. Because you know... The money's to come from me from that person. They are indebted to you because they have the money that is supposed to go to you. That's what this is about. Paul has been entrusted with the message of Jesus. He's been entrusted with the message of grace that is intended to go to the Romans, that's intended to go to all the Gentile world. It's God's message. It's God's grace. It's, you know, the way to be saved and reconciled and restored. And until Paul finishes delivering the message, he's obligated to the people who are supposed to receive it. Does that make sense? It's not his to keep for himself. It's it's like God said, here, here's the message to save the world. Could you please take it to the world? He's obligated to take it to the world. They're waiting for him to deliver the message. That is true of the folks also he's writing to, and it is true for us also. That affects how we think of others in the church, and how we think of others even who are different than us. The message of Jesus is intended to go to them. That's who it's for. Verse 16, it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And we know that salvation is not just that moment of forgiveness. It's the whole story of being reconciled, the whole story of being changed. So the idea that that person over there doesn't fit or that people group, man, I, you know, they don't belong. It's completely against the whole idea of grace. Grace is for them. That's why we were given it, to give to them. I invite you to take time and to ponder. Um, Ponder the people that you find hard to be around, other folks. And it's really natural. It's human for there always to be somebody we don't get along with. Like that's, that's the human condition. To let that frustration with whoever be replaced with, we all belong here because of God's grace. You are here by God's grace. I am here by God's grace. They belong here because of God's grace. And to ponder it and let it wash away your frustration with people until you land at Thanksgiving. Let it wash away your perspective that doesn't align with God until you discover thankfulness. Thankful that they're different than you. Thankful that they get to be included in God's kingdom and that their unique perspective and their unique traits get to be included in the kingdom. Thankful that you'll get to know them and you'll get to learn from them. What does Paul say? That you get to be mutually uh, edified, mutually encouraged by each other. To step back from things that cause frustration and remember they're included until you land on thankfulness. Because that also then changes how you relate with people. You're driving me crazy, but I'm actually thankful for you. So what's caught your attention this morning? How has the Spirit been speaking to you? Let me just review where we've been. We are all a little bit like Rome, right? We're all natural fighters, we're all natural wrestlers. This church in Rome had Gentiles, it had Jewish Christians. Folks who were raised to be part of God's people. The Jews were expelled, and then when they returned, they didn't fit anymore. And so Paul writes about grace. We all belong, not because of who we were, but because of God's grace. Our identity is in Jesus, who himself changed in the resurrection. He gained a new power to forgive. He's the king. So we have a new way in our forgiveness of seeing ourselves and discovering our own identity, and this word obligated, we're given a message to give it to other people. To let that, just to ponder the goodness of God's grace, and let it lead you to thankfulness. So that's where we've been. What uh, has caught your attention? What? How has the spirit been speaking? How has the spirit been speaking to you this morning? Uh, many years ago. Somebody explained to me the meaning of grace, and I may have mentioned this before. But grace has a concept of favor. So when I read the word grace in in, in the Bible, I always think of God's favor. That's a
0: significant part of the word grace. And it changes everything when you read grace and you say God's favor. But it also has this other concept which is even more interesting to me. It is undeserved
1: favor. So every time I read the the word grace in the Bible, I've done this for years now, I always read undeserved favor. God actually favors me. But of course,
0: it is totally undeserved. Nice. There was a few things you
1: talked about that struck me. Verse 4, you said declared was a bad translation. I disagree. And what comes to me with this was declared son of God goes back to Matthew 3, where at his baptism, God declares, this is my son. And the obligation, you know, I understand that because of his calling, I guess, Paul was obligated to deliver the message. And it's interesting, you know, that Paul was a Jew and the Jews had been obligated to spread the message and they didn't. They focused on their identity. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Their birth identity.
0: Yeah. And they weren't interested in their obligation. Wow. Neat. So my brain actually. Uh my brain actually caught on the same things as uh, berries did so yay consistency Um, and I find it super interesting the comparing human nature to divine nature because what it sounds like to me um, is the natural transition at that point in history from air presumptive to air uh, where you're now you have formal decision-making power you're not like the head honcho but if you want something done a little bit more discreetly you go to the air you don't go to the the person who's in charge um you there's like this point where they're old enough to be an adult they've got a family they're not in charge yet but they've got power and it's really fascinating and uh the other thing that caught in my brain was um, being entrusted with the message. And for me, it calls back to this, uh, there's this weird psychological thing with human beings where if you tell someone, I am entrusting you with this thing, even if you've never met them before, they will almost always do it. That's why when somebody is in an emergency, you point at a person, you say, you call 911, they will do it. Ninety-five percent of the time, if you are in, a, in an emergency situation and you're like, "You watch my backpack," they will prop. They will almost never do anything to your backpack. They will guard your backpack, even though they have no idea who you are. They may not be a trustworthy person. That's just one of those things we were built to do, Interesting. which is fascinating, and also really good when you're in college. But- yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. Or when you're at the, a show or a theater. i got to use the washroom. Can you watch my coat? Okay. <laughs> Let me offer a prayer. Father, Father, you are glorified in our midst. Um, the message of your grace is so freeing, so uniting, and so challenging all at the same time. Lord, we just bless you. We thank you. And we love you for how you have blessed us. Lord, um, I would ask that you would help us to, that that you would lead us to the people, that you would like us to tell them about your message of freedom, of grace. Yeah, that we would be faithful with what we've been entrusted with. Jesus, we praise you for what you have done. And uh, I just celebrate that you are the king and you are the one who forgives. You are the one who loves our soul. And Holy Spirit, thank you so much for encouraging us and guiding us and giving us words and insight and at the same time, calmness and peace as we live our days. Thank you so much for being our God. We love you. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast today. New Life Ministries is located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. You are invited to join our service in person or over Zoom. Please use the contact us link to send an email to the church office and request the address or Zoom link. If you would like to use these podcasts as part of your home church or local church gathering, you are free to do so. We do request that you let us know. If there is any other way that we can help you in your ministry, please send us an email.